hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. It's Cece and Carly here today. Our fearless leader, Bianca, is not with us and I know you will miss her. So it's just the two of us. And before we get started, Carly, will you read us our reminder? As a reminder, this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each individual author. As always, refer back to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you, Carly. Now will you read us the first query letter, please? All right. So before I start this query letter, it is going to sound familiar to you guys because this is a resubmit. So don't worry, you are not in the wrong episode. If you've heard this before, there's a reason for that and we are going to read this one again. So anybody who has heard this one before, put your really strong analytical listening ears on and listen along with us as we kind of notice what is different from last time, what is the same, and what the reasons might be for that. Here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, once again, thank you for building this writing community on a foundation of hope. Carly recently critiqued my query letter and it was incredibly helpful. I hope you'll consider the revised pitch for The Wet Season, my dual POV 80,000 word commercial fiction debut. Comps include Kevin Wilson's Nothing to See Here and Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. 
and I like to think of it as Thelma and Louise with a much happier ending. The wet season celebrates the feminist power of female relationships, platonic, romantic, and the gray areas in between. In 2015, 35-year-old Belinda is trapped by an abusive partner, and Celeste, her former high school best friend, is stuck in an emotionally manipulative marriage. After an accidental encounter in a Los Angeles clothing store rekindles their connection, they escape to a Central American eco-utopia to flip a dilapidated and quite possibly haunted beachfront mansion that Celeste purchased for a dollar. As perpetual rain complicates Belinda's efforts to beautify the property while avoiding an overly friendly handyman, Celeste explores her queer identity. But the discovery that conservative laws threaten reproductive rights on the island and the fixer-upper was once a medication abortion safe house that is again in desperate need forced Celeste and Belinda to address their conflicted memories of the past and different visions for the future. Their friendships might survive the test, but a mysterious stalker watches their every move and their lives might also be at stake. The wet season takes place in 2015, when I learned about the $1 homes for sale in Sicily and traveled to Costa Rica. I mashed up these experiences and the book was born. I have an MA in journalism from USC and I'm pursuing an MFA in fiction at Pacific University. My work was recently featured in The Good Trade, The Washington Post, and Hippocampus, among others. My career as an environmentalist led to appearances from The Today Show to TEDx and informed my creative writing. I'm relatively well established on social media and 9,000 people, 98% female, and 65% between the ages of 45 and 64, subscribe to my newsletter, which is associated with my Mommy Greenest blog. These women are my target audience. From a recent survey, 96% are readers and 80% reported that they wanted to read my fiction. I also mentor young writers through 826LA and I'm an active member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association. As per your submission guidelines, I've embedded the first five pages below. Thanks so much for your consideration. All best, Rachel Lincoln Sarnoff. Thank you, Carly. What was the word count on that? And what did you think of the query letter? All right. So the word count came in at 424 words. All right. So right away, you know, like you guys, and and like I said, off the top, I recognize that this was a resubmit. So my questions to myself are always, why are they resubmitting? Obviously, this is a podcast and this is for educational purposes. So I understand in this context why somebody would be resubmitting. I would be looking at things again, like I said, what is the same? What is different? What choices did they make? Did they incorporate a lot of my choices? Sometimes when we do these kind of revised query letter podcast episodes, I don't go back and read my original notes because I like to kind of view it with fresh eyes because that seems fair, again, for the educational purposes. In this case, I did actually want to go back and look at my notes because I didn't feel like a ton was changed. So I was kind of like, oh, I wonder what notes I gave. So I did go back, look at things to kind of get a sense of like what was moved around and things like that. So the word count is essentially the same within a few words, which makes me think, okay, they wanted to stay within this space. A lot of the things are the same, such as like the comps. The one thing that they change that I would not agree upon, which is they open with themes. And I've talked a lot about why I don't think themes are a great way to enter into a query letter. So the opening of the new version says celebrates the feminist power, female relationships, platonic, romantic, and the gray areas in between. I would definitely not do this here because I believe that query letters are for plot and stakes and not for themes. Themes will always reveal themselves either through the query letter or through the pages or through the eventual manuscript. So I don't think talking about themes is moving the needle at all. You know, the ways that you can frame the query, like what we're trying to do is frame, right? By starting with things like comps and word count and genre and themes, like you're, you're trying to frame my understanding of the words that are to come. So I understand why you're doing this. I'm just telling you this isn't the best use of your 
real estate, your time, your energy for this query letter, because there's so many other things you can be doing with this space, such as getting to the point of this book. So that's really what I would focus on. When you talk about feminist power, female relationships, platonic, romantic, and the gray areas in between, ideally your comps will do the job of that. If you pick the right comps, they will kind of, again, frame this understanding of the words to come. So that's just something to remember. I know I say that a lot and I, I mean it because I don't include themes when I am pitching to editors because I personally do not believe that themes sell book. Themes do not sell books. Plot sells books. Stakes sell books. Themes are the things, that, again, that make us feel things, but every individual person is going to kind of come to that in their own time. So that's why I feel that way. All right. And so kind of coming back to the revised query letter. I'm still having trouble with the kind of domino effect, right? So it's like they meet, then all of a sudden they're off to Central America. They're like, you know, off on this kind of reconstructing this house project, which is much more described in this draft, which I really appreciated. And then at the end, there's a bit of this like mysterious stalker watches their every move and their lives might also be at stake. I don't remember that from the first version. Well, it says like mysterious stalker watches their every move. That's what the old version says. And this says comma, their lives may also be at stake. So I really want to hone in on the word choice there, right? So you said their lives may be at stake. Are they at stake or are they not at stake, right? Like this is intentionally vague. So I'm kind of worried you're just like trying to amp the stakes up here by a like, maybe. Again, I'm trying to follow the domino effect here because they're both in abusive or manipulative marriages or partnerships. So number one, why did these men quote unquote, let these, you know, women, or I, I think one of them is queer, like, you know, what, whatever the partnership is, like, why did this partner let these women quote unquote, go on this trip? Was there a, some sort of battle or fight or escaping relationships like this can be you know, physically costing. Do you know what I mean? So that's a lot at stake for these women to get out from under these thumbs. The next thing is it says, okay, so then it says a mysterious stalker watches their every move. Their lives may also be at stake. Really, we should be kind of circling back to the themes here, which is these women were in these situations, abusive partner, manipulative marriages. Like, do they not feel like one of these partners maybe have come back to get them, attack them? Again, I don't know what's at stake here. I'm not trying to again, make your book into something it's not, but are they worried these, these partners are coming for them? Like that would be my worry if I was the person in the situation or the character in the situation, right? It's like, did they start new credit cards? Are they using cash? Like escaping relationships like this is, is very hard. And so I feel like we're glossing over like the escape plan and these domino effects are happening in ways that I, I can't connect the dots. And I really do want to know like what is at stake is if they are, you know, again, it says their lives may be at stake. If that is true, that is very interesting and potentially kind of like a thriller-esque situation, which again is, is pretty interesting. So those are kind of my notes on like the side-by-side. -side. So that's that. Okay, so moving on to the author bio section. So we essentially still have two author bio sections. And so I'm just going to kind of compare these here. So it has been reduced from the last time, which is great. I will say the pieces that I think you can still cut is the data. So I think it's fine to be like, I'm well-established on social media and you know, 9,000 people subscribe to my newsletter. 
period. I would really just be kind of like ending with that because the conversation about like percentages and, and you know, who wants to read my book and all of that, that just comes later, right? Because we have to fall in love with the materials first. And just the like 9,000 subscribers is awesome. That's a huge number. Congratulations. But I, we don't need to get into the like, you know, breaking down the data at this stage. Again, thinking about how important this real estate is, we want the agent to be getting right into the pages. So that's a little side-by-side analysis for you. Thank you, Carly. I love that you did that. I love that you compared it side by side. I often don't, and I feel like I'm going to do that when we have our next resubmit. I don't have a lot to add here. I feel like you covered most of the points. I will say, just to build off what you mentioned, when I got to the line about the mysterious stalker, I was like, wait, what? Like, that's that's a different book. And I had not compared it to the previous one, so I didn't remember. So I think that for me, like if this had been a query that landed in in my inbox, I would be thinking about the fact that it feels like that line makes it a totally different book from the rest of the query letter, but also from the comps, right? Like when I think of of nothing to see here and such a fun age, I'm not getting mysterious stalker and lives at stake from these books because that's not what they're about. So I don't know. I, I, I think I would either like dial that up and then potentially review one of your comps. Do we need it? Because I don't know how integral to the story this is. Sometimes I know that, and I know this from talking to authors one-on-one, sometimes authors add these juicy lines just to hook the agent. That's the intention. And it might not necessarily be in your best interest if it doesn't actually reflect your story. I don't know. We don't have the author here with us, so so we don't know. But something to think about. Will you give us a summary of what happens in those opening pages? All right. So this is going to sound familiar once again, but we'll, we'll go through the run through. So 2015, we're in Belinda's kind of point of view, essentially it's third person, but it says 2015 Belinda, Los Angeles. She is working in her clothing store. If you guys remember, it is kind of like a consignment used shop where people come in, drop off their clothes, get cash or consignment opportunities. So we are kind of seeing Belinda at work. She is eating Cheetos. You guys might remember that she's eating Cheetos. She's really sweaty. Those are some things that are the same from last time the doorbell kind of rings and a woman comes in this is celeste she doesn't know that it's celeste at this point the woman's kind of just like bringing in the clothes she says welcome to the store they are kind of explaining how consignment works and belinda is kind of thinking about you know how she feels around this person and then she's like oh it's celeste they connect the dots and yeah they kind of just like talk about the store and then belinda's like realizing you know how she again how she feels around celeste which is she makes her feel safe and that's something that she hasn't felt in a long time and what did you think of the execution all right so there are some things here well i guess i should say i think most things are the same i don't really think i don't really think there's any major edits though a couple edits and again i went back to my old notes that i noticed i talked a lot about this character was a very sweaty character there was a lot of like talking about her body and like the sweat between everything and I was like hey, we can dial that down a little bit and we did which was great there's a lot of lines that remain that I really liked which was great you know I still love the line you know our character Belinda she's she's perching on a stool and it says like a bird that can't commit to a branch she shifts her weight nervously on the wobbly wooden disc. Same line. I still like it. So, you know, I can tell there's a really strong command of language here in terms of like really thinking about what that situation would be like for that character, as well as observationally for the sake of the reader. So I really, I like it. One thing, which I'm sure we talked about last time, but I didn't like go back and listen to the episode or anything like that, 
which is the fact that they do or don't recognize each other. So you guys listening, you might remember better than me, or if you recently listened to that episode, I can't remember what I said about that, but I still feel like it's a little bit strange that it takes her a little while to recognize her. I don't know, like a high school best friend. And if this person's probably like in her thirties, I don't know. I, I couldn't imagine not recognizing a high school best friend, especially in the age of like social media. I recently had a kind of a reunion with my undergrad friends. And I was like, we were all like talking about, we look exactly the same. We were taking pictures. I'm like, there's just something about somebody's face where it's like, we don't really change unless obviously there's like some sort of accident or like major surgery or, you know, something. I'm like, we, we look the same. So I, I have a hard time imagining that they wouldn't recognize each other. So I kind of made a note here. like, oh, could she be like holding the boxes more up by her face? You know, the thing she's carrying and making sure it's like very clear that she's like hiding behind something. I don't know. I just, I find it strange that it would take that long. Again, if they're true best friends, I just have a hard time imagining this without, again, her face being covered or holding big boxes or hiding behind some of the fixtures in the store. But other than that, you know, I just made the same notes, which is, you know, I think the writing is really strong. There's something here that says, even after a year at pre-loved, Belinda still gets a voyeuristic thrill going through people's clothes and imagining their lives. Granted, the shop attracts a certain demographic, white, affluent, environmentalist women, just like the Santa Monica neighborhood where it's located. But even within that homogeny, there are vast differences. So, you know, again, really strong command of language here. So I want to come back to the fact that this person resubmitted. Okay, so... We gave these notes, we sent them off. Obviously, you know, you guys, some of you might be in querying stage. Some of you might be like, oh, you know, I'm in editing stage. And so I'm assuming, again, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. I'm assuming this person took our notes, went off and queried it again, and are still not getting the results that they want. So this is the big question here is, well, again, you guys are always welcome to resubmit to us. This is a learning exercise. This is an educational platform. But why are you coming back to us, right? Because we want to help you. So I'm thinking that the points that I'm talking about two times in a row are the things that you need to focus on, right? Because I am an agent. I am the person that receives queries. So I think I would really just take to heart what I'm saying, especially the things I'm saying twice, just again, to help you get the outcome that you're hoping for. Cece, did you have any other notes to add? I thought that was a brilliant analysis. I agree the writing is really strong. I agree with you. I highlighted the same section. I really enjoy how her interiority imagined the lives of the people whose clothes she gets to sift through. So that to me was really intelligent. I will say though, that there was a little bit of repetition right in the beginning and repetition happens. You know, I do it. Everyone does it. We're all human. I just do want to say that in the very first page, you want to try to avoid it because it is the first impression that an agent is seeing. So I'll point that out for you. We have red bleeds into the corners of her mouth. And then right before that, same sentence, shoves flaming hot Cheetos into her mouth. And then a few lines down, head to tip crumbs into her mouth. So I feel like one of these references to her mouth can be lips or it can just be removed altogether. I felt that the description of both herself and the best friend was stopping at description. So she was giving us very, very sharp specifics about her friend's appearance, for example, loose white tank through which Belinda can see her flat chest and the faint outline of her pink nipples and faded jeans worn to threads at the knees. These are sharp specifics. These are really good. Shiny, dark brown hair falls past her shoulders like a silver cape, right? Her eyes are covered by gigantic black sunglasses. All this works, in my opinion, if you want to elevate it even more. What you can do is you can infuse that with emotionality. 
because that's something that was missing from these pages. How does she feel when she observes a woman who looks like that? Comparison might be the thief of joy, but it is the giver of character development and the helper of tension. Is she observing a woman who is that polished? I mean, she has Cheetos all over her face, right? Like with envy? Or is there a kind of an undercurrent of perhaps what she wouldn't admit is pity, but is pity? Because it's like, I would not want to live my life like that, having to look that polished all the time. Maybe it's something else right? I just feel like if you infuse it with emotionality and with her specific interiority, that would be really, really interesting. Including when she's thinking about the lives of the people whose clothes she sifts through. Like, is she imagining them pouring the wine and tucking the perfect children with horror? Like, oh my God, that life? Like mild horror? Or is she imagining with envy? or something else. What you want are very, very sharp emotions. You don't want like placid emotions. You don't want like, oh, that life is really different from my own. But you know, I respect that. That seems nice. That That's polite and adorable. But you don't want that for your character. You want your character to feel really deep, messy emotions. I kept wanting more thoughts. I kept wanting more thoughts and more interiority. And so I highlighted those references for you and, and maybe it'll be helpful. Thank you so much, Cece. All right, let's switch over to your query letter. Hi, Cece. Based on your interest in literary fiction geared toward women, I think you might enjoy my armchair travel literary slash women's fiction novel, A Road of Her Own. After an unsteady childhood spent living on the road with her queer mother, Mira, a 29-year-old overly cautious and serially unpublished photographer, finds herself gripping a secure life that's strangling her soul. Bound to a dead-end job as an obituary writer and caretaking her now-blind mother, Mira feels her dreams of becoming a globe-trotting photojournalist are forever out of reach. After drowning in burnout, Mira embarks on a month-long odyssey from San Francisco to Banff, Canada, in an unreliable van to photograph wild parts of the West in hopes it awakens the wild in herself. As she meets new people who are at their own life junctures and experiences rugged adventures she never fathomed she'd take on, Mira gets closer to the life she longs for and also childhood wounds she's no longer able to dodge. As she confronts life and family struggles head-on, Mira must decide what she's willing to risk to rise into a life that's truly her own. Much like the structure of Vanessa Diffenbaugh's Language of Flowers, this complete 75-word literary fiction novel pivots between Mira and her mother's point of view revealing family secrets and the driver behind Mira's unconventional upbringing. A Road of Her Own also offers vivid national park settings amidst the protagonist's rebirth, offering life-affirming armchair adventure akin to Brianna Medea's Nowhere for Very Long. I'm a California-based writer, author of a poetry book, Love Notes to the Body, and former van lifer. A Road of Her Own was named a semifinalist for the 2022 Black Lawrence Press Book Award. I received my MFA in creative writing from San Francisco State University, and my writing has been featured in Entropy Magazine as a top personal essay of 2020-2021, a Penn Center USA anthology, Sunset Magazine, and the San Francisco Chronicle. When I'm not creating, I'm often on solo outdoor adventures, much like my protagonist. Enclosed, you will find the first five pages of my novel, Thank you, Cece. And how long was the query letter and what was your take on it? The query letter came in at 358 words. Okay, so I'm going to start from the top. We have 
the word count, 75,000 words. That's awesome. And then we have the genre. This is an armchair travel novel. This is literary novel. And this is women's fiction. So we're saying it's three things. Personally, I wouldn't do that. I feel like you should call it one thing. Below, you do. Below, you call it a 75,000 word literary fiction novel. I think that's your genre. I think you should call this literary fiction and stick to it. If, of course, that's how you, how you feel, it is too. But having read your pages, I think that would be my best guess. Wish you were here, so wish I could ask you more questions to be sure. But again, having read your pages, that's what I think you're writing. That's the space that I think you're writing in. So let's discuss the plot paragraphs. I don't know what exactly happened in the story. I love the setup of emotionality and life moment, right? Like it's very eat, pray, love. Like I understand what I'm getting into. But then we have things like after the inciting incident, which is she drowns in burnout and embarks on a month-long odyssey, right? In an unreliable van. What happens after that? We know she meets new people who are at their own life junctures. We know she gets closer to the life she longs. And we know she gets close to the childhood wounds she's no longer able to dodge. And we know that she confronts life and family struggles. But notice how, as I'm saying these things, no one has any idea what that actually looks like. Like, what childhood wounds? How does she confront them? Who are these people that she meets with? And how do they factor into her own story? What plot is actually happening? If you had to shoot the trailer for the movie version of this, what scenes would you be shooting? It feels like all you would be shooting are, you know, those beautiful scenes where the woman is looking into the ocean and like nothing's actually happening and it's so beautiful and cinematic. Those are great, but you also need plot. So I think plot's missing here. As I read this query letter, I got the distinct impression that I was reading a query letter for a memoir. I get a lot of queries for memoirs, and many of them are in the vein of a woman goes to discover herself, figure out her childhood, figure out her life, and she goes on an actual journey, like a road trip of some sort, or not necessarily a road trip, to figure out the internal journey as well, right? Like you have that parallel. So I could have sworn this would be memoir. And then, of course, it's not. It's literary fiction. But I'm wondering, was it ever a memoir? And did you adapt it? So that's a question I have for you. And I would bet money that that at one point this was a memoir. And not just because of your autobiographical reference. It's how you're framing the protagonist. It feels like you and her are very fused. And so you don't have that distance needed to figure out like, oh, what plot points are happening? So because you are making this into fiction, though, remember, you get to make stuff up and you get to really specify and really tighten. And, you know, picture the trailer for the movie. What fun plot points would happen after the inciting incident? I think that's the question you should be asking yourself. And I don't think you need to repeat the word count and the genre because you are repeating it. Just mention it once. It's a small thing. You also say that we get her mother's point of view right? So if we do, if we do get Mira's mother's point of view, Mira's mom needs a hero's journey of her own. Mira has her own internal hero's journey. We don't have an external one yet, but her mom needs both an internal and an external. So, so give us both, please, if it is to be a dual point of view novel. Yeah, those were my thoughts. Carly, what did you think? All right. I made a lot of the same notes, starting with obviously the genre, right? I'm like, these are all very different things. So we need, we need one thing. Let's talk about the title. So it should always be in all caps to stand out. This one's in italics, which again, this isn't like a red flag. It's just, again, please make your title stand out because it's super important. It's a huge selling factor for your book. It is the thing that when I'm talking, say I love a manuscript and I'm like, hey, Cece, I love this manuscript. It's called blah, 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 right? Like I need to be able to tell Cece when I fall in love with a manuscript, what it is called, right? So it's just a huge calling card. 
I can't emphasize enough how important and unique and just essential as a marketing tool your title is. So the one thing you can do in your query letter is just make sure it stands out. It's in all caps and it's just, it's loud. That's something that you can do for yourself. Now, in terms of the title, A Road of Her Own, I'm you know, going to make the leap here. The assumption, this is kind of a pun on a room of one's own, but it's like a road of her own. I don't dislike it. I am just wondering if it's too obvious, right? Like it took me like half a second, right? To put all of that together. With literary fiction, sometimes we need a bit of a more kind of meandering, thoughtful title that isn't quite on the nose. So I would play around with that a little bit. Again, not saying that it, it's it's wrong or can't be done. It's just, I don't know. It's It was a bit obvious for me for a literary novel. So I would just wanted to point that out. I agree with Cece. I think we had a, a word missing. So I made a note of that as well. I also think, I mean, a couple notes like oh I think we can take this specific word out because again with literary fiction I am assuming you are at the top of your game in terms of again command of language you're thinking like a poet every time you're crafting a sentence you know you're just like oh is this the right word here so I made some specific word notes for you again I don't do this for every type of query letter or every type of project but for literary fiction again to be a literary fiction author capital L literary fiction again we're, we're going to assume certain standards for you so that is something that I made sure to include. Now, it says Maria must decide what she's willing to risk into a life that's truly her own. So what's really at stake here? I mean, Cece obviously pointed out, you know, I think there's some plot elements missing here, but, you know, was she interacting with extreme weather, you know, animals? Like there has to be something again. And if there's not, I question what type of arc this story has that's going to be dramatic enough that is going to, again, make us kind of gasp and pause and wonder. It was like, oh, she going to make it. And, you know, what's at stake if you don't make it? I mean, that's the, this is the hero's journey, right? This is the question of all quests. What's at stake if you don't make it? You know, and then this is the range of emotions we, we need to kind of process and, and plot points that have to get us there. So I think we're missing those elements. Again, CC pointed that all out. I also had a note about, yeah, the mom's point of view. Is it 50-50? We don't see any of that. So I kind of underscored that as well. The last note I want to make is about the award. So you said a road of her own was named a semi-finalist for the 2022 Black Lawrence Press Book Award. So I think it's very important to specify, especially with something that sounds like this, whether it is an unpublished book award for unpublished manuscripts. I know there's a lot of awards out there for unpublished manuscripts, which is great, right? It gives you that little cred, but this kind of makes it sound like your book is published because I'm like, oh, well, did Black Lawrence Press publish your book? Then I, as an agent, I, there's nothing I can do with this project. Again, I know this is an educational platform and so that's fine. But in this case, I would just, again, try to make that really clear. Just say like unpublished book award or something like that. Because if the goal is to get an agent to sell this project, I need to know that I can sell your project. So that's it from me. So CC summarized those opening pages for us. All right, so we have our protagonist, Mira, thinking to herself that she's not a surfer, and yet she's out in the open ocean of the Pacific. She figured if she thrusted herself into something she thought she couldn't do, surfing, then the road trip that she is going to embark on that feels semi-impossible right now would somehow become slightly more manageable. So, you know, again, she's in the ocean, she has a board. As a kid, she would see the ocean all the time, but it always felt daunting. So this is a really big challenge for her. She thinks about taking surfing lessons, but it's really expensive. So it's not something she wants to invest in. She just wants to do it. So she's obviously like looking at the surfers, comparing herself to them, figuring out what she can do to get on a board and, and actually ride a wave. And then she realizes she's in the wrong spot, panics, loses the board, you know, talks to herself to stay calm. 
another wave barrels towards her because waves have been barreling towards her in the meantime. Again, she tries to stay calm. Another surfer asks if she's okay, but he doesn't stop to help her or anything. He just asks and she thinks to herself, why isn't he helping me? She fumbles to the shore and then she thinks about the obituary she had written about her, her own obituary she had written, you know, a little while before. And then she thinks to herself, okay, day one, or actually says to herself, day one. All right. Thank you for that summary. So let's get into it. What did you think of those pages? My feedback is going to sound strange because I have two major points to my feedback and they're going to sound like they contradict each other, but I promise they don't. Part one, you can write very well. Like you have a way with words, you know how to wield them into sentences and you know how to wield these sentences into paragraphs and you can write very well. The writing is very strong here. I hope you're very proud. I hope you are very, very proud of your talent, of your way with words, because it's really impressive. In the very first paragraph, I was already like highlighting the echoes and being like, oh my God, this is lovely. I love the detail here. It's really good. Like really, really, really good. Please be very proud. Please be very happy about the quality of your writing. So this is writing. And there's, in my writing on a line level class, this is something I talked about. You have writing and then you have storytelling. They are two different things. In my opinion, the greats are good at both. They're great at telling a story, at structuring a story, at keeping the tension and making sure the character is someone you want to stay invested in, all that good stuff. And they can actually write too on a line level. You can write on a line level. I have no doubt about that. And I have no idea whether you can craft a story or not because all I've seen are five pages. But based on your first five pages, I am concerned that there is no plot here. We have her out in the ocean in a scary situation, facing a fear. And in my opinion, the motivation is not compelling enough. Again, it's possible that the motivation for the book is it's possible that this is just not the right place to start. But given that the query letter didn't have any plot, and now the pages don't really have any plot, I'm a little worried. I'll read the line that made me think this. So this is on page two. She figured if she thrusted herself into something she thought she couldn't do, then this road trip that feels semi-impossible would somehow become slightly manageable. First, I think you should remove semi. It should feel impossible. Don't make it wishy-washy. Don't make it lukewarm. Make it hot. But again, as far as motivations go, it's not very juicy. It's possible that this is an introspective, quiet novel. And if so, please disregard my comments. Because if it is an Eat, Pray, Love sort of book, I've said this on the podcast before, and Elizabeth, author of Eat, Pray, Love, if you're listening to this, please know you are great. I think Eat, Pray, Love is the most boring thing ever written. I do. I could not get through it. I did not like it. It's been years since I tried, in fairness, and I loved the movie. The movie was fun, but it is boring. So it's possible that it is a me problem, right? Like a CC problem. But to me, this is right now reading is very introspective, very quiet. She's just in the ocean. She's doing her thing. I think you have potential. You mentioned the obituary and I was like, this is juicy. Why are we not getting more about this? She has essentially what is a near-death experience. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but I mean, she's in the ocean. She could have died. And I'm like, why didn't we get active emotions there? Why didn't we get juicy interiority? Like maybe her thinking about someone that would make me curious. When the surfer doesn't save her, she asks, why didn't he save me? But we don't get any like story of my life. People never save me. I'm always the one doing the saving. You know, things like that, that I really would have wanted to see to keep me invested. Oftentimes when I'm reviewing things for the podcast, and I do try to say it as, as often as I can, I'm mindful that it's a taste thing. 
You know, it's just not matching my taste, my style. Last week's query, if if I'm getting our schedule right, was like that too with a secret service agent. Like it's just not something that I would ever believe, but everyone else in the world believes it, so it works. But I think that here, if this is meant to be beautiful literary fiction about an introspective journey, then I would need stronger interiority with a something that would keep me more invested, something more juicy. I hope that my notes will help you flesh that out if you want to, or, or it's just not a matter of like, it's fitting my taste because that happens too. And that's okay. So much of this industry is subjective. And a huge part of being a creator is that you decide what goes into your creation, not me. I hope you'll take my feedback seriously, but it's just that it's just one person's feedback. Curly, what did you think? I was really blown away with the quality of writing. I think this is some of the best writing we've seen on the podcast in, I don't know, a while. Like, it's always hard for me to compare because every project is like apples and oranges and bananas. And it's like, you know, we get so many different genres, but it felt so intentional. And I think that's why we come back to thinking this is literary fiction, because Everything is so specific in terms of like the way that they feel in the water and the fact that they're out there and there's such a sense of place and personality and even danger, you know, with this like being in the water. And, you know, I've talked about this on my own socials, like one of the reasons I wanted to like learn how to swim and, you know, do triathlons is like I I was nervous in the water and this was like my way of, you know, just being in control and water can be really dangerous. And so I like, I really connected with that sense of danger in the water. And and I, I really felt that this character was feeling all of these things. So I was very in the moment when I was reading these pages, I felt like sometimes, I, you know, on the podcast and when I read just query letters or work by newer authors where I feel like I can see the scaffolding, you know, like I can, they did this to get to here and this was placed, you know, like I, I can, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, a costume designer and you're like, oh, I know that they sewed that fabric to that fabric to make that dress. Like, that's how I feel when I'm reading newer work sometimes. And it's sometimes not a problem because how they get to that outcome of making that dress is beautiful, you know, but sometimes the most skilled craftspeople are the people where it's like, you don't see the seams. You know, I don't see this person sewing this dress together. So I felt like I was really in the hands of somebody who was really able to keep us in this moment. You know, a couple questions I had was, She's very obsessed with the fact that the lesson was $120. She said that's two tanks of gas. She wouldn't stay out long enough for it to be worth it, she figured. But she rented the board and presumably you need a wetsuit in the ocean in June. Like, did you buy a wetsuit? Like, I couldn't imagine these surfers not wearing wetsuits. So I'm like, she's like, wants to invest in this, but like not invest in this. So I kind of needed her to unpack that a little bit for me. It's like, oh, are you willing to invest in this hobby or not? And why or why not? And also, like, does she care what the other surfers think of her? Why or why not? Those are some of my questions. But, you know, I just made lots of notes about really enjoying it. You know, I think sometimes on the podcast, we also talk about swearing and how that can be used usefully or unusefully. And there was like an F-bomb. There was shit. Like, there, you know, it, it was all placed in places that were meaningful. Another thing I want to say about this being literary fiction is a lot of times we get pitched projects where it's literary fiction and quite literally nothing is happening and not in a bad way. It's like, again, writing can be really beautiful. And, you know, we always hear about, oh, these opening pages, they have to grab us and things have to happen and we need motion and blah, 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 all these things we talk about. She's in the water having these contemplative moments. And there is, as she says, like a sense of flow that's, you know, there's that opportunity for flow when you're with the water, but 
there are sharks in the ocean, which she says. There are waves crashing down. She is pulled under. So there is that sense of like Phoenix rising from the ashes, just her like totally getting tumbled under and just like coming back. So there was a huge sense of movement, danger. And in literary fiction, that can be really hard in the opening pages. So I give this person a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I think that's where my notes end. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another Books with Hooks. We'll see you next week. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest, author of the Newbery Honor-winning The Night Diary, earned her MFA in creative writing at Sarah Lawrence College. She is the author of The Whole Story of Half a Girl, a Sydney Taylor notable book, and a South Asia Book Award finalist. And How to Find What You're Not Looking For, winner of the Sydney Taylor Book Award and the New York Historical Society Children's History Book Prize. A former editor at Simon & Schuster, she now teaches in the Writing for Children and Young Adults MFA program at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. It's my pleasure to welcome Vera Hiran Nandani. Vera, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you. We're very, very excited because we don't We haven't had a lot of middle grade authors joining us, and with your amazing credentials, we are absolutely going to be picking your brain today, not just about your incredible book, but about the genre in general. So to kick us off, Vera, when we're talking about middle grade fiction, can you tell us how you would define the genre beyond the fact that the audience is intended to be children aged between 8 and 12. What are we really looking for when we're looking at middle grade fiction? Sure. Well, I think there are a lot of definitions out there. So I can really only speak to what kind of makes sense for me and why I love middle grade and why I write middle grade and why it's so something that I found easier to access than writing for other age groups. Like it's a lot harder for me to write YA than it is middle grade. And I think part of it is because in my own personal journey, those ages like 10, 11, 12, kind of in that bracket were more difficult times for me growing up. And I had to change schools and I had no friends at my new school. And I I definitely was desperate to kind of figure out my way in the world and understand the world on a deeper level. And it was a time that my world, which was kind of safer and more simple before that, and that's not the case for every kid, unfortunately, but it was sort of a very safe, comfortable world. And then suddenly my world kind of broke open a bit and I saw all the kind of the cracks in that sense. So suddenly the world started to make less sense and I was figuring it out on a new level. And I think middle grade often captures that moment when the narrator is figuring out, huh, the world isn't quite as simple as I thought. And it's sort of their first inkling, but they're kind of bringing their innocence to a world that suddenly isn't so innocent. So I I see it that way. And that's my long (laughs) rambling definition. Now, I love that definition because, you know what, it's really sparked something for me because I always thought growing up in apartheid South Africa, I'm giving my age away here, but I mean, I was born in 1976. So I was at this age in like sort of 1986 onwards. And I always thought that 
there was no middle grade fiction genre when I was growing up because we just didn't have access to this in South Africa beyond Anne of Green Gables. I remember getting my hands on Anne of Green Gables, but that was it. And I thought there wasn't that genre. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that the apartheid government was actually censoring middle grade books for South African children for this exact reason. Because if you keep children in this kind of dysfunctional microcosm and you tell them that this is what the whole world is like and you limit their access to television so that they can't see how other kids are in different countries, then you're not expanding their horizons and you're not getting them to question the kinds of things that that you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really specific difficult example of of what kind of we can do for, you know, if kids don't have access to all kinds of stories, and that can work on a number of different levels, then it can really shape how you what you think about the world and, and what you understand. For me growing up, I grew up in Connecticut. And my background, I my mother is Jewish, and my father is originally from India. And then my parents met in the 60s and got married. And they're both sides of their families weren't happy about the marriage at first. And eventually everybody kind of evolved and got on board. But growing up, I didn't know a lot of kids that had my background. I knew very few Jewish kids. I knew very few kids with an Indian background, South Asian background, and certainly no one with both in their family. So, and I didn't read any books that that sort of captured that experience. So that was my, the whole story of Half Girl was a book about a girl who has the same background as I do going through some things at school, changing schools, trying to find new friends and trying to figure out why people sort of treat her the way that they do at this new school where she didn't experience that at her older school where everybody knew each other and it was very small. And so that was something I was kind of writing for myself, for my younger self to kind of give me a story to understand who I was and why these things were happening. And so I think it's just that big sort of asking why the world is the way it is for the very first time. That's how I really see middle grade. Yeah. And your points there are twofold. So one, for children like you, representation matters. It's really important to see yourself reflected in the literature that you're reading to understand that you are not alone. There are other kids in the world who are the same as you, similar to you, experiencing similar things. And then for people like me, it was really important to not be in an echo chamber in which we had our own reality sort of reflected back to us and told that it was normal and there was no other experience out there that was important. Our experience should be 100% centered. And that's dangerous too. Yes. So certainly it's it's understanding different experiences in all kinds of ways, either to see yourself or to see outside of yourself and understand that there are just so many different experiences out there. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to discuss the heavy themes, the difficult themes shortly. But just to begin, so A Meal and the After is a companion novel to The Night Diary. Can you tell our listeners a bit about both novels, just to orientate it for them? Sure. So my father grew up in India before the partition of India. So the partition was when India was split into two countries, what is now Pakistan in India. And this happened in 1947 at midnight between August 14th and 15th. And it's the same time that India gained independence from British rule. 
And so my father grew up in what is now Pakistan in Sindh, in a city called Mirpurkhas. And he had to leave with his family a few months after the partition happened. And they had to cross the border and into the new border of India and find a new place to live and rebuild their lives. And so when I grew up in Connecticut, I would hear some stories from my aunts and my uncles and my father about this time and how they had to leave their home. But when I was really young, I didn't understand the global history piece. I just thought that this was something something kind of hard and scary happened to my father's family, but they left and they found a new home and they were okay. And when I saw the movie Gandhi when I was 11, we all my family went to the theater and we saw it. And of course, you know, it's a big Hollywood depiction of Gandhi's life and it shows a lot about the partition, but I hadn't learned about it in school. I hadn't read about it. I, I didn't understand that this is was something that affected millions of people and that my family history was connected to it. And it really changed me. And it be, I became more and more curious about what that meant and how my father's family was affected and then how millions of people were affected. I didn't know I'd grow up to be a writer, but when I did, I really wanted to try to capture this piece of history in a story for young people, for the generation that may not, you know, in the U.S., I don't think people learn about the partition a lot. Maybe they read a line that India was became independent during this time and became two countries, but they don't understand what that meant. And the people who went through partition, like my father, he's in his 80s. And so we are losing this living history. And so I, I think that some partition survivors aren't alive anymore and they're getting older. And so I think for people in my generation, it's sort of up to us to kind of capture that history in whatever way we can to make sure that the next generations following don't forget because there's so many things we can learn about it. And of course, we see echoes of things that happened during the partition in our modern times. We'd like to think that we learn from these things, but unfortunately, we keep repeating the same mistakes. And so I, I wanted to write a, a story and I thought, well, middle grade, it just feels right to, to attempt this with a middle grade character. So The Night Diary is about a young girl named Nisha who writes in a diary about her experiences having to leave home during the partition. And she and her twin brother, Emil, and her father and her grandmother they leave. And so The Night Diary is really about the crisis, kind of, are they going to survive what is immediately happening and how they leave their home? But about a year after I wrote The Night Diary, I didn't expect to write a companion novel to it. And I started to think, I started to miss my characters. I started to miss the world. And I would go on a lot of school visits and talk about The Night Diary. And a lot of the students would say to me, are you going to write another book? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And they're like, oh, we really want to know more from Emile's perspective. And I started thinking about it. And I really fell in love with that character as I was, I was writing The Night Diary. And so I started to write the beginnings of what would become this book. And what I wanted to really explore was what happens after the crisis? How do we rebuild our lives after a traumatic experience? And so that was the lens I was really putting on with this next book.
Right. And I know we've got listeners who are going, okay, Bianca, but now what is the difference between a companion piece and a sequel? So Vera, I'm handing that across to you. (laughs) It's really interchangeable. I think that I wrote Emile in the After to, if you want to read it, there's kind of a little bits of summary in the beginning of where they, you know, what has happened before. I think it's a better experience if you read both books, but you certainly can read it. It works on its own. It's not following the exact same point of view. It feels like a very different book about the same characters. So you're very much in the world. You are going to find out sort of what happens to this family if you were a fan of The Night Diary and how they continued their lives. But it's from, instead of Nisha's point of view, it's from Emile's point of view, and it's in third person. It's not in a diary format. And he loves drawing. And so part of what you'll see in this book is illustrations that Emile is supposed to be doing. It's, of course, an illustrator. We hired a beautiful illustrator named Prashant Miranda. So it's kind of interchangeable. It can work as a sequel, and you could call it a sequel, or it's just kind of another story based on the same characters. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a distinction there. And since you brought up the illustration, it was going to be a question I was going to ask later, but now's the perfect time. So the illustrations are just gorgeous. And you can see as the character's skill develops, as he gains more confidence and he gains more skill as an illustrator, the illustrations change. But besides that, they tell us something about his character. They're not just there as pretty pictures for the reader to look at and go, ooh, pretty pictures. So can you tell us a bit about why he draws and what this says about him as a character in terms of his character arc and development? Sure. Yes. Well, in The Night Diary, Nisha loves to write. And so she writes, you're reading her diary, her fictional diary. And she talks about Emile and how he loves drawing, but Emile has trouble reading and he has trouble in school in a way that Nisha doesn't. And it's hinted at, even though in 1947, he may not have been diagnosed. It may be just that he was lazy or not focusing on school enough, but he's dyslexic. That's what I'm kind of portraying, even though I don't actually label him that way. And a lot of kids and teachers do recognize that in the book. And so he has trouble reading and writing, but he wants to express himself. And he has this conversation with Nisha. I want to express myself. And they both think about their mother who died during childbirth. And so they never knew their mother. And he wants to express himself and sort of communicate with this idea of his mother, this memory, or he doesn't really have a memory, but this sort of figure that he doesn't have the way Nisha did with her diary. And she suggests, well, why don't you do a drawing journal, draw pictures for her, because he doesn't have trouble drawing. It's a real talent of his, and he finds it a lot easier than writing. And so that's what you're seeing, his drawing journal to his mother. And then he, yes, he gets better over time. So the pictures become a little more detailed and skilled over time. Something I loved is, well, two things here. So for our listeners, Vera really exemplifies the showing, don't telling, right? Because she doesn't tell us that he's dyslexic. We're left to figure that out for ourselves. But he talks about how he struggles with the letters and how they tend to move around and they morph and they become something different every time he looks at them. But he says, unlike a scorpion, when he draws a scorpion, 
it's always a scorpion. It, it doesn't change and evolve depending on how he looks at it. So the showing versus telling and just that lovely, lovely insight into the character's psyche is incredible. Vera, for our listeners who want to work with illustrators, can you tell us a bit more about how that works? Now, I understand you have won a ton of awards before you wrote this book and put it out. So it may have been different for you in that the publisher might have said, here we go, we're paying for an illustrator, you work with them. Can you give us an indication of what your experience was like with the illustrator and perhaps what a debut novelist might expect from working with an illustrator with their debut? Yes, this was a pretty specific situation. So I've written a chapter book series called Phoebe G. Green, and that, because that was for younger kids, it was always going to be illustrated, kind of black and white illustrations, not that the characters are doing it, just as you said, like they're just pictures showing what they're doing for younger readers. And of course, there are illustrated picture books. And usually the way that happens is... If you are not a professional artist yourself as a writer, you submit the manuscript. And if your manuscript sells and the editor takes it on, it's really their job to pair the writer with the illustrator. So for a picture book or an illustrated chapter book, that's going to be the way it works. And unless you are a professional team or you yourself are a professional artist and you submit the manuscript that way, it isn't your job as the writer to find an illustrator or pay for an illustrator or anything like that. So if you like, for example, if you're a new writer and you have an uh, idea for a picture book, write the manuscript. If you're not a professional artist, don't even worry about the illustrations other than writing. You want to give writing opportunities for those illustrations. But other than that, that's kind of where it ends. For A Meal in the After, it didn't necessarily have to be illustrated, but I, I had this idea that we would it would sort of link to the night diary. What way would Emil express himself? And it would be drawings. And how do you guys feel about that? You know, I asked my editors how they felt about it. Could we include illustrations? They were excited about it. And maybe because I'm a more established author, they were kind of going with that idea. And I had met an illustrator when I was touring for The Night Diary and I went to the Neve Children's Literature Festival in Bangalore, India. And I met an illustrator there who is originally from Canada. He, I think he lives in Canada now. And he, Prashant Miranda. And we connected at the festival and I got to see uh, some of his work there. But afterwards, as we do, you know, I followed him on Instagram just to see more of his work. And it, just looking at his work, he does a lot of these journals and sketches and kind of watercolor sketches of his travels and his life. And there was something about it that just reminded me of what I imagined Emile's drawings to be like. And I, I wasn't even really fully invested in writing this next book. But then within the next year, I started and I was like, God, it would be great if he could do the illustrations. And so I suggested it. And and here we are. So he was available and it worked out. It was meant to be, which is incredible. In terms of those illustrations, does an author need to give an indication to the publisher of the style of the illustrations they would like? Because saying you would like a drawing of this or of that, an illustrator's style really can make or break a novel, depending on how visually appealing it is, how much kids connect with that. 
Do you, as the author, have any say in terms of the style you're imagining? Do you submit a style and go, this is kind of how I imagine it, but it's up to you? Or is that not even within your within your power? Yeah, you can definitely suggest it. And if you know illustrators, I'm working on my first picture books, actually, coming out in fall of 2024 and spring 2025. And because I've met a lot of illustrators, my editor asked me, Do you, are there any specific illustrators you admire or could see for this book? If I said no, I did. And I, I made some suggestions. And one particular suggestion, my first picture book will be illustrated by the illustrator and author Vesper Stamper, who I've admired her work for a long time. And so I suggested that and that worked out. My editor loved the idea. But if I said, I don't know, my editor would make that decision. I could really see this book going in this style with this illustrator. And that's very common that the editor is really the one who kind of maybe has that vision and pairs it together and like brings it together that way. For our listeners, keep in mind that when you add visual elements like this, whether it's illustrations or drawings or whatever, it does add to the cost of production. So, for example, with my latest book that will be coming out next year, it's a book full of puzzles that adult readers need to solve alongside the person who is solving the mystery. It's a closed room murder mystery. And this was something that the publisher is concerned about because the puzzles need to be illustrated, it's additional printing costs, etc. It's something we really had to negotiate in terms of my contract. So if it's something you're thinking about, keep in mind the production costs at the moment in general are very expensive when it comes to books and publishers are trying to keep costs down. So if you can get away with not having the illustrations in your book, do that. But if they're absolutely needed, of course, then they absolutely need it. Right now, coming back to the themes in this book, Vera, we're talking about very heavy themes. Through Emile's story, young readers are learning about the complicated physical, emotional, psychological impact that comes from being forced to leave your home. How do you write about such difficult subject matter for children in a way that makes them empathetic, where they're able to put themselves in that position and feel for those characters, but not so much in a way that it frightens them or creates sort of anxiety in them. So it must be a really difficult balancing act. It is because a lot of my research about the partition was reading nonfiction, academic books about what happened from many different perspectives and a lot of also personal accounts of the partition from adult to adult. And so Sometimes in my reading and my research, I would come across extremely upsetting material about the way people died or were killed during the partition that would make me not be able to kind of go on for a little while and have to take a break because it's just so scary and upsetting. And just the idea of what humans will, will do to each other when they're put against each other in kind of whatever conflict they're in. And so during the partition, there were a lot of tensions between Muslims and Hindus crossing the borders. And often in communities like Mirpurkas, multiple religions live together peacefully. And that wasn't necessarily the case in every area all over India. But what my father remembers is there was respect and peace between all of the different religious groups in India, which there are many. So 
I'm taking all this research. And I think then it is, again, about going into the characters, trying to understand what Nisha and Emil can sort of handle and take in. And also I'm a parent and my kids are older now. They're older teen, young adults. But I started writing The Night Diary many years ago now and they were younger. And so it's sort of that kind of toggling between what I could kind of handle reading, remembering what I could kind of handle reading at 11, 12, and what my kids could handle reading and sort of translating the story um, I wasn't going to write the most graphic, most violent account of the partition. And the truth is, my father's family, they did not encounter violence. So some of the, I do show some things that happened, more violent things that happened in The Night Diary and A Meal in the After, because I wanted to show more of a, a whole truth, a more complexity about it. But my father's family, they were able to get on a train and cross the border and didn't encounter violence. I have other relatives who did encounter direct violence, and that's not something that they want to talk about. So that wasn't where I could get my direct research. It's often easier to talk about the subject with people who are less traumatized. So I was kind of blending all that together. With that said, there are some upsetting scenes that I have in both The Night Diary and A Meal in the After, and that is up to every reader and every parent to decide what they feel comfortable experiencing and what they can handle. There's a part in The Night Diary where the the family, they run out of water and you're not sure if they're going to survive, and then they do encounter some violence, and then A Meal in the After... They meet somebody who has been kind of suffering more than they've been, not having a home and not having enough food. And so that's really, it depends on what, as a parent, what you think your your young reader can handle. And then as a young reader, just, we're all kind of, some people can just read like all these kind of traumatic things or, or horror even, and they can just kind of get through it and sort of distance themselves from it. I actually am a very sensitive reader. And so for me, if I read traumatic things, it really stays with me and I have to be careful what I take in. So again, it's an individual process. Yeah, I couldn't even handle Charlotte's Web, man. So that was that was hugely traumatizing for me. So it just goes to show for each reader it's different. But then I think of Royal Doll books that were for children that were extremely graphically violent and that was fine. So I guess kids will process these things differently. We've got time for one last question, and this is where I really want to pick your brain as somebody who was an editor and someone who also teaches. In terms of emerging authors who are writing in this genre, what is the biggest sort of mistakes you see them making? What are recurring mistakes that you see coming through that you could caution our listeners against making? Well, one of the things I think for any kind of writing is to to really think about writing in scene. A lot of times we sort of, in early drafts, we explain the book to ourselves, which is normal in a first draft. And, and there's going to be probably some more exposition and some more summary as you get to know your own story. But looking at, at later drafts, what really makes the writing come alive and certainly for young readers, is to be kind of right in the action of a scene and thinking of your book as scenes, as the building blocks, not even chapters so much as scenes, writing your book scene by scene. So that's that's just a good writing 
tip to be conscious of, but you can't do everything in a first draft. That's the other thing. So thinking about your writing journey as multiple drafts and with each draft you're working on different things in your story and writing for young people i think it's just very important to really try to inhabit the character as much as you can and get in touch with your own 9 10 11 year old self even if the story has nothing to do with your life to really really immerse yourself in that space and i think that's more helpful than imagining as an adult what a 12-year-old reader might want to read or what they how they talk or their world in more of a popular culture way, I think that can read false ultimately. So it is really about really understanding how a 10-year-old might think and inhabit the world than thinking about what a 10-year-old reader wants from an adult reader trying to pretend to be a 10-year-old. <laughs> Excellent advice. And some people mistakenly think that writing for children is easy. I think it must be the hardest because kids can be brutal, right? They aren't sitting there going, they're harsh critics. They aren't sitting there going, well, I spent 30 bucks on this, so I'm going to push through. They're like, nope, 10 pages in, I'm bored, I'm dropping this. I've got television, I've got all kinds of things to keep me occupied, so I don't need to read this. So I think writing for children is much, much harder than than writing for adults. Vera, thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely chatting to you. I've still got a whole list of questions that we didn't get to, but this was a very, very illuminating discussion. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.